Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. A big welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. And hello again to all our regular listeners. In this episode of Talking France, we will look into why so many are choosing to leave Paris to live elsewhere, and what are the upsides and downsides to this exodus. We'll also bring you news of a change to the process of becoming French, and explore just how hard it is for a foreigner to become naturalised. One of the criteria of becoming a citoyenne of France is, of course, to speak French, and following a suggestion from readers, we'll bring you some crucial advice for mastering the language of Molière and Asterix. And the battle over pension reform in France has not gone away. We'll bring you up to date with the strikes and look at some shenanigans in the French Parliament. We will also introduce you to a Frenchman named Robert Hebra and the horrific story that led to him being given a national memorial service this week. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined, as always, by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, and journalist, Jen Mansfield, plus French language expert, Camille Chevalier-Carfis. Hi, Emma. Hi, Jen. Glad you are back with us. Everybody okay? We're great, thank you. Doing good. We've got a jam-packed podcast ahead of us. Let's crack straight on. Now, the French capital, Paris, where we are based, of course, is one of the most densely populated cities in the world. But everyone's leaving to live elsewhere. Well, not everyone. But since 2010, the city has seen a significant and sustained drop in its population. But what does this mean for the French capital? Is it bad news? Or could there be a silver lining to this exodus, as has been suggested by Paris's own mayor, Anne Hidalgo? Emma, just kick us off. How many people live in Paris? Well, roughly 2.14 million people live in Paris. That's 120,000 less than lived here in 2010. Uh, and those figures are showing a fairly steady year-on-year decrease. About 12,000 people every year, or 12,000 fewer people every year live in Paris. But Counting the population is not quite as simple as it sounds because Paris is actually only the part of the city inside the ring road. All of the rest of the city, the inner suburbs and the outer suburbs, are part of the Ile-de-France region, which is why technically Charles de Gaulle Airport is not in Paris and the Stade de France is not in Paris, which is important to know when you're buying transport tickets. And it's also important when we look at population loss because at the same time as we see people leaving Paris... The seven départements that make up the greater Paris region have actually all seen an increase in population. So it does seem like a lot of people are just moving out of the city centre to the suburbs. Yes, the stats suggest that six out of ten of those who leave Paris move to the suburbs. Others go elsewhere to other cities in France, of course. Emma, do we know why they're moving out? It's pretty rare to find something that everyone across the whole political spectrum agrees on. But in this case, pretty much everyone accepts that there's one thing behind it, and that's housing. Simply put, there isn't enough housing in Paris, and that's driving driving up prices to insane levels so that a lot of people are just being priced out of the city. As soon as you go outside the périphérique, so that you're not in Paris proper, property prices both to buy and to rent fall quite dramatically. And in recent years, there have also been some pretty major expansions of the metro network out into the suburbs. So commuting in from these areas is a lot more practical than it used to be. But I think one of the things that's as important as how many people are leaving is who is leaving. 
And it seems that the group that's disproportionately affected are families with young children. And it's so much so that this is actually being dubbed la fuite des familles, or the flight of the families who are moving out. And this is having an immediate impact on pupil numbers in the city's schools. And we're seeing schools closing or classes closing across the city. Yes, indeed. This week, parents and teachers from schools across Paris demonstrated outside the Rectorat, that's the Paris Education Authority, not too far, actually, from our office here in the 19th. They're angry about the planned closure of some 180 classes in primary schools at the end of the school year. Education authorities argue that they've got no choice given the falling number of pupils, as you've suggested, Emma, and they can't justify keeping them open. Union and parents, on the other hand, they're arguing that closing too many classes in the most deprived areas of the city hits the poorest children the hardest. That's mainly in the north and the east, where many children don't have French as their first language. And these are the children that benefit from smaller class sizes, of course. Emma, what's the Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo's view on losing her inhabitants? Well, she caused some controversy recently by saying that what she called the de-densification of the city was something to celebrate. And that's kind of been seized on by her political opponents. But she was really just talking about certain of the poorer areas of the city that have a very high population density and some fairly crappy housing as well. But it's safe to say that what the mairie definitely doesn't want is for native Parisians to be priced out of the city and for the city centre to become a sort of Disneyland for tourists and rich people. And ironically, the tourists probably wouldn't like that either, because one of the things that visitors to Paris all talk about is, you know, these lovely neighbourhood areas where people live. They have independent shops like boulangeries and butchers and bookshops. And obviously these businesses wouldn't stay in business very long if there's no one around to buy the bread, the meat, the books, etc. And this has already happened to an extent in Arrondissement 1 to 4, which is the sort of real centre of the city alongside the river. In 2020, they actually had to merge those four arrondissements into a central district just for electoral purposes, because there weren't enough registered voters living within those areas. So basically, there weren't enough people actually living there. Yeah, Anne Hidalgo has spoken frequently in the past how she doesn't want families to move out of the centre of Paris. But, you know, like you've said, property prices have just made it unaffordable for many to actually stay in the city, hence why they're looking elsewhere. I read a really interesting stat in French newspaper Le Parisien that said... 18% of homes in Paris, uh, on average, were unoccupied, either second homes or just completely vacant. And in the central arrondissements, this figure was as high as 30% of homes that, you know, basically unoccupied most of the year. Surely city authorities are not happy with that. Are they doing anything to make it easier for families to stay? Yeah, I mean, the, the housing shortage is really the only thing they can tackle to get people to stay. There are some public housing schemes. There are initiatives that turn commercial spaces into housing. There is a rent cap within the city so that rents can't go above a certain level, which is not always adhered to, it's fair to say. They've recently brought in extra taxes on second homes in the city. And they've also brought in some very strict rules on Airbnb rentals in order to try and keep housing for full time occupation rather than for tourists. But it's just not a very easy task for Paris. It's a city that's already very densely populated, so there isn't really anywhere to build new housing. And it's a city that's very popular with tourists and with very wealthy individuals. So it's just hard for publicly funded organisations to match the kind of funds that private buyers have. I mean, just for context, in the centre of Paris, there's a lot of apartments that are owned by Gulf Royals and until quite recently by Russian oligarchs. I mean, it's just kind of hard to outbid those guys. Yeah. What about the reaction in the suburbs? Emma, you live in Bagnolet, one of the suburbs in the kind of outer ring just outside Paris, uh, as do many of our readers and listeners. What's been the reaction of some of the mayors out there just outside Paris? 
Uh, some of them are quite happy to uh, to have new arrivals. Uh, the uh, the head of urban planning in Montreuil, which is a suburb to the east, just next to where I live, he said that what we're seeing is a, a Parisian phenomenon, that the population is driven out by property speculation. But then he added that what we see in Montreuil is a rejuvenation of our population with young couples moving in and therefore a dynamic of class openings, for example. So he's pretty positive about it. And for many towns, it's good. I mean, I certainly see the effect where I live, which is becoming increasingly what the French call bobo, it's like hipster, basically. Seems like every week there's a new artisan beer bar or an organic vegetable shop opening. But the issue of schools is a problem for many of the suburbs. And the reason for that is that areas allocated their education budget based on data from INSEE, the French Statistics Office, and that's always three years old. So the suburbs that have seen a recent influx of families are facing a big budget shortfall. The mayor of Romainville, which is another of the eastern suburbs, he says that his commune has a million euro shortfall in its education budget. Interesting phenomenon that will keep on happening. And Paris has got the Olympics in 2024, which people keep talking about. We don't yet know what effect this will have on, on the city. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the development for the Olympics is being deliberately put in Saint-Denis, which is quite poor area, just to the north of the city. They're building the Athletes' Village there, and that's being built in the way that it can be quickly converted into housing for local people afterwards. So that will probably have an effect. But it is quite concentrated in just this one area. So it's kind of hard to say at the moment what effect that's having on the city as a whole. Interesting. Yes. And we'll keep an eye on it. And you can read an article about this on our site, thelocal.fr. Thanks, Emma. And on we go to strikes. Yes, strikes. France saw its fifth day of mass mobilisation this Thursday against pension reform. And it's unlikely to be the last disruption on Thursday was set to be less than in recent weeks. But unions are vowing to bring the country to a standstill in the next big day of action tabled for Tuesday, March the 7th. Paris Public Transport Unions plan a renewable strike after that date. So travel disruption could continue throughout March. But as the strikes and mass demonstrations continue, the focus has been on what's been happening in Parliament as MPs debate this contentious pension reform bill. Or perhaps debate is too elevated a word for what's been going on in Parliament. Jen, you've picked out some of the antics to tell us about. Yeah, so there has been a lot of tension between opposing groups in France's Parliament. And for me, the most bizarre event so far has been this controversy surrounding La France Insoumise député Thomas Porte, who posed for a tweet while wearing his tricolor Deputy Sash and resting his foot on a soccer ball with the face of France's labor minister on it. And the tweet said, Minister, Minister Olivier Dussopt, withdraw your pension reform. It's turned into a real controversy, but personally, I'm wondering whether he just stumbled upon the head-looking soccer ball, or if there was some poor parliamentary aide who had to do the job of printing out a picture of Olivier Dussopt, pasting it to the football and, and, and putting it out to Twitter. Other members of parliament have called the picture violent and are pushing for the deputy to receive a penalty. And the deputy himself has defended the tweet and said that the real violence here is against workers by forcing them to continue working for an extra two years. Yes, that's obviously referring to Macron's plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Jen, it's clear the opposition and Macron's deputies in parliament are not getting along. Debates have been suspended several times when things got too heated and there have been calls for sanctions against certain MPs for the language they've used. For example, one irate deputy called government ministers killers. 
Yeah, there was a little bit of an olive branch passed earlier this week when the Noops leftist coalition agreed to drop 1,000 of the amendments that they added to the pension reform bill, although that still leaves about 17,000 in total, which political commentators have considered to be part of a strategy to slow down the debate process, a bit of a run-out-the-clock strategy, if you will, seeing as the parliament technically just has 50 days to examine the text of the bill. Okay, 17,000 amendments. Wow. Now, Macron himself has stayed well out of the limelight during this battle. Jen, say for a few short comments to journalists, leading the government troops has been Elizabeth Bourne, his prime minister. And you think the stress is starting to take its toll. I do think the stress is starting to take its toll a little bit. I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would want to be the prime minister presiding over a deeply unpopular reform either. Lately, I've been seeing people refer to Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne as the vapoteuse. Vapoteuse is French for female vapor or for woman who vapes. Now, I must preface this with the fact that we know Elizabeth Bourne loves her electronic cigarettes. There have been quite a few pictures of her vaping during parliamentary debates and other events, but a lot of them have come out during these recent debates over pension reform, and the images even kickstarted a debate over whether or not she's actually breaking the law by vaping in the workplace, and that debate's still going on. But my personal hunch is that she's probably just feeling quite a bit stressed managing this whole thing. Quite understandably, I would say so. I would not like to be in Elizabeth Bourne's shoes at the moment. Emma, these are tense times in the French Parliament, but also out on the streets where hundreds of thousands have been marching in recent weeks. Have you spotted anything untoward among the protesters? Yeah, there was one that was quite disturbing, actually, at a demo in Marseille, where there was an inflatable doll that was kind of done up by Elizabeth Bourne on one of the floats from the CGT union. And it kind of looked like it was being hanged from a gibbet, a bit like a sort of lynching. That's been condemned across the political spectrum, isn't it? incitement to violence. More amusingly, this isn't unique to this protest, but I did spot at Emmanuel one of those incredibly creepy mock-up pictures of Emmanuel Macron with the hair, necklace and handbag of former PM Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher is obviously well known in France as a union buster and this accusation that Macron is a, a French Thatcher has dogged him since the start of his presidency. Although Frenchies, I have to say, as someone who grew up in the north of England during the Thatcher years, Macron is not Thatcher. <laughs> Indeed, a reference to former British PM Margaret Thatcher, which you often see during anti-Macron protests. A reminder that you can keep up to date with all the news about the strikes in France on our website, thelocal.fr, where you can also sign up for our daily newsletter, which is packed full of essential news and features about France. As regular listeners will know, we like to pick out a French personality who's been in the news this week. Emma, this week we've gone for a man named Robert Hebras. Tell us about him. Uh, well, he died at the weekend at the age of 97, which is why he's in the news. And the reason that we're talking about him, and also the reason he will be given a national memorial service on Friday, is that he was the last survivor of the massacre at Oradour-sur-Glane. Now, the name Oradour-sur-Glan is really well known in France, but I think it's less well known internationally. What is it? Tell us about it. It's a village. It's in central France, uh, quite near Limoges. And on June 10th, 1944, it was the site of one of the worst atrocities in France during the Second World War, when 643 men, women and children were massacred by German soldiers who also set the village on fire. There was only six people who survived, including Robert. He was only 18 at the time of this massacre. You might expect him to sort of feel anger at what had happened to, to him and his friends and his family and people he knew. He, in fact, dedicated the latter part of his life to making sure that the massacre was remembered and also to reconciliation 
relation between France and Germany. He worked with the German government on reconciliation project, building into European ties. He sounds like an extraordinary man. And he'll be remembered on Friday with a, a sort of national memorial ceremony at the village attended by the, the great and the good of French politics. Now, this village is now a memorial site that is visited by up to 300,000 people each year. Emma, Orodour sur Glan has been described as a place of contemplation, even a place of pilgrimage. You visited. Just tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah, after the war, they decided that they wouldn't rebuild this village, that they would leave it exactly as it was, as a permanent memorial to the people who lost their lives there and also to the many other civilian casualties of the Second World War. Uh, Yeah, I visited it a couple of years ago and it's honestly one of the most moving places I've ever visited. The village is preserved as it was in the aftermath of the massacre. So the stone buildings still stand, including the church, which was set on fire after all the women and the children of the village had been herded into it. And you can see the remains of the houses and the shops. And in them, you can kind of see the remains of the things that didn't burn. So there's like cars in people's garages, there's sewing machines on a table, there's the big oven in the village boulangerie. And presumably you just, you know, you enter and you walk around the village and you see basically the site of the massacre, how it was back then. Exactly, yeah, you sort of walk down. It was it was quite a decent-sized village. It had a you know a row of shops and everything, so you kind of walk through the village, see everything as it was. But there's also a visitor centre, which kind of gives you a bit of context of the massacre, of what happened. And honestly, the thing that really shocked me was how organised it was. I think I had assumed that this was individual soldiers running amok. You know, it was June 1944, the war was pretty much over. But actually, this was a planned operation in retaliance for resistance activity in the area. And in the days before it, there were people who were having meetings and making notes on exactly what they intended to do there. And the visitor centre kind of lays all this out. And it's careful to note that, of course, this wasn't the only place where this kind of thing happened during the Second World War. And there are a lot of places, especially in Eastern Europe, where victims have no memorials at all. And the one other thing that really struck me from this visit was a memorial. Obviously, there's a memorial to the 643 people who died. But in the existing village churchyard, many of the families of the victims erected their own little plaques to their loved ones. And these are the little ceramic plaques, like you see in French cemeteries. And what really struck me was the language used on them. They talk of people being assassinés par les Allemands, murdered by the Germans, or brûlés par le baba nazi, uh, or just brûlés par le Bosch, burned by the Bosch. It's really visceral language and you can really feel the anger and the grief and the horror coming down the decades at you. Yes, Robert Hebras will be remembered in France this week. And if you want to know more about Oradour sur Glan and even plan a visit, you should visit the website oradour.org. Now, the idea of becoming a French citizen is one that interests many of our readers. Indeed, thousands of foreigners become French each year. Emma, it's got slightly easier, hasn't it, to become French? Uh, Yes, France has slightly simplified its process for foreigners to get French citizenship. But before we get too excited, it's not a change in the requirements to qualify for citizenship. It's just a new online portal where you can submit your application instead of the old system of having to send an enormous file of papers to your local prefecture. It should hopefully be a bit simpler and a bit more streamlined, though, and it'll probably save the lives of a few trees since you don't have to print out all that paper. Just the question of becoming a French citizen, how hard is it compared to other countries around Europe? Well, in a Europe 
European context, France is actually one of the more generous countries in terms of residency time, but it's still not a walk in the park. There are two main routes for foreigners through residency, in which case you need to have lived in France for five continuous years or for two years if you've completed higher education here, or you need to be married to a French person. In that case, you need to have been married for four years. Those are the most common. There are some other ways you can get citizenship through having a French parent, through being born in France, or through serving five years in the French Foreign Legion. But that sounds pretty brutal, so I really wouldn't recommend doing that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a question many French people ask me. They know I've lived here for 10, 12 years. Why haven't you become French yet? And I think, you know, I do really want to become French because I really want to vote in presidential elections here. But the thing that really puts me off is going through the process. Just tell us how bad is it, Emma? <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't qualify, so I don't qualify until next year. But I can tell you how how you do it. But it is quite complicated and time-consuming. I think a lot of paper so you can't be lazy about this that's what i'm talking about emma you can't be lazy you can't you don't just get it do you <laughs> no no unfortunately not you you have to want it you have to earn it yeah so the actual routes it varies slightly depending on how you're applying for citizenship but the most common route is through residency for that one first you need to take a formal language exam to at least be one level french once you've done that you need to create an enormous dossier of documents this is now a virtual dossier so no paper but you will still need a lot it varies slightly again depending on your personal circumstances but you'll usually need a recently reissued copy of your birth certificate, a confirmation from your home country that you don't have a criminal record. So anything you want to tell us here, Ben, might be useful. No, I'm clean. Good. You need your last three tax returns in France, plus more standard stuff like proof of your address, proof of your work or financial status and ID. There's actually a really helpful simulator on the French government citizenship page where you answer a load of questions about your personal circumstances and they provide you with a list of all the documents that you'll need. I went through it in preparation for mine and I need 20 separate documents so it is quite a lot thanks to the new portal once you have your dossier together you can now submit it online and then you can create an account to track your application but it's still your local prefecture that actually decides assuming that your dossier is approved and everything is there and no more information is required you're then invited to an in-person interview at your local prefecture where you'll be tested on your knowledge of france its culture history politics and values and presumably in french in french yes you see this is what i think this is the scariest part of the whole process you know, being grilled about France in French, this much feared citizenship interview. What can you tell us about it? Can you put my mind at ease? No, because it seems to vary a lot what people are actually asked. Um, there's a handbook for this that uh, is called Le Livre de Citoyen, and that kind of has a, a grounding of France's history, geography, political system. So it's a good idea to go through that and learn some facts. Of the people who've done the interview, though, some say that they were literally just asked a couple of questions and then that was it. And some people had like a proper grilling for an hour on things like France's longest river or whatever. It seems to vary depending on where you are or even just the mood that your interviewer is in. But the one thing you do need to demonstrate is that you need to show a real commitment to France. You'll almost certainly be asked why you want French citizenship and saying you just want a shorter passport queue at the airport will not go down well. You need to show that you want this. And you also need to demonstrate that you support French values such as laïcité, secularism, such as equality between men and women. And people do get turned down at the interview stage. It's not just a formality if you can't show that you're committed to France and the French way of life. Right, OK. It's a long process, two years. The interview is the key moment in the whole process, is it? It 
is, yes. And speaking of that interview, Jen has prepared some sample questions for you. So we're going to see just whether you're ready to become French. I felt you were going to stitch me up here. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, no, I, I honestly believe that you will pass this. You know France, you love France. This is your chance to, to prove it. Yeah, so, 10 to 12 years. OK, come on then, Jen. OK, so the first question is, who is Marianne? Oh, God. Marianne. We're talking about the real Marianne, yeah? Mm. Like, hold on, well, she's, the, she's the French woman on the stamps. Yes, she is, is. Or is she the French woman in Republic, the statue? I think she's the embodiment of the French Republic, is yeah. it not? Yes. That, that's correct. Yeah. She's the symbol of the Republic. Okay, that that counts, I think. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, how many regions are in mainland France? Regions? Ooh, okay, it got reduced recently from uh, 18 to 13, I would say. Nice. Nice. It is 13. Perfect. That's correct. I, I think they'd give you an extra point for knowing the uh, the previous number of regions Yeah, as well. I might be wrong about 18. Do you know what the biggest region is in France, though? Nouvelle-Aquitaine. Nouvelle-Aquitaine. Okay, where is it? Uh, it's down in the southwest, and my favourite fun fact about Nouvelle-Aquitaine is it's actually bigger than Scotland. It is huge. Yeah, yeah it's, it's huge. Enormous. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Go on, Jen. Okay, this is a hard one. When was the start of the Third Republic? Oh, God, give us a clue. When was the first and second? Uh, okay, Third Republic. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to just guess here. 1848. No, it was 1875. But oh. you're in the right century, at least this time. Okay, okay. Let's forget about that one. Keep okay. going. Okay, all right. What about the five longest rivers in France? I Le know this. Fleuve. Yeah, the Fleuve. Le Fleuve. Okay. The Seine. The Rhine in the yep. east. The Rhône. Yep. Through Lyon. The Loire. Yep. Through all Chateau country, out into the west, flows out into the Atlantic, and I'm going to say the Garonne. Correct. Get five in for there. five, nice. Get in there. Okay. Give me my French passport. Oh, yeah, you're almost ready. All right, here's the last one. Okay. What are France's five biggest cities? Easy. 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 Right, Paris, Marseille, Lyon, Nantes, Nice. Mm, Nantes is wrong, but the rest of them are right. Do you want to try one more time? Uh, Bordeaux? Nope. Toulon? Nope. Toulouse. It's got to be Toulouse. Toulouse. Yeah, Toulouse. Toulouse is big. It's correct. Yeah. Toulouse, Toulouse is bigger than Bordeaux? Yeah. Apparently. Wow, okay. Makes sense. It's got a lot of industry in Toulouse. You know, they have aerospace industries all in Toulouse. Yeah, a lot of students too. Okay, brilliant. Okay, what do you reckon? What's the verdict? Do I get my passport or not? Yeah, I, I, I think you're ready. I, I'd give him citizenship for that. I'm, yeah. I struggle with history, but geography is my, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, guys. Now, if listeners would like to take their own citizenship test, you can find the article on our website, thelocal.fr slash tag slash French hyphen citizenship, and you can test yourself there. Thanks, Emma, and thanks, Jen, for those questions. Last week on Talking France, we asked you for your tips and life hacks for living in the country. And we noticed that one piece of crucial advice came up over and over again. It was, of course, learn French. Now, that's a bit easier said than done. And Emma, Jen and I will have our own little pieces of advice for you shortly. But Jen, you spoke with our language expert, Camille Chevalier-Carfis, to find out what listeners can do to learn French. What did you have to say? I did speak with a French language expert, uh, as you mentioned, and she runs the language learning website and blog French Today. Camille Chevalier-Carfis told me that there are three main things that you can do to help yourself along when learning French. And I'm just going to hand it over to her. 
So, bonjour, je m'appelle Camille, my name is Camille, I am the founder of frenchtoday.com and I lived in the US for 17 years and teach French to English speakers, not only the traditional French language, but also French like it is spoken today in the streets of Paris, for example. I was wondering if you could give us your three tips for how to learn French or how to speak French better. Okay, I have them. I would say that uh, tip number one is if you're learning French to communicate in France or in French for that matter, you absolutely need to learn French with audio. I am amazed to see so many people who are in today's age still learning French only from books and they don't have the pronunciation. Level appropriate audio. Okay, so if you're a beginner, find an audio that is made for beginner students, but still introduce you to regular French, the way we speak regularly, okay? And you need to learn everything with audio, not just conversation, the verbs also, the verb conjugation, so that you do all this liaison like ils ont and uh, je suis allé, okay? Or in modern French, je pas, for example, which is written je ne sais pas. So really take your time finding the right audio for your level to learn French. Second tip <laughs> would be don't over-intellectualize, is that an English word? Yes. <laughs> the way that you approach French. A lot of students learn French as an intellectual challenge and they love, they, they, they are interested in the stimuli, the stimulus they get from, you know, trying to understand French, trying to decipher French grammar and so on. A lot of people actually hate French grammar, but believe it or not, a lot of people love French grammar. They approach it as a kind of mathematical problem. They want to challenge their brain against it. Okay. That's great. That's something that you can do on top of your French studies. But if you're learning French to communicate, you need to do exactly the contrary. You need to simplify your sentences. You cannot show your wit in French at the beginning. And that's point number three, I guess. <laughs> you have to be humble. There's just no way around it. You cannot show your wit. You cannot show your culture. You cannot show your real voice when you're speaking French. You have to make all these efforts and it's tiring and you're going to make mistakes. There's no way around it. Please do not think that people are going to think you're stupid because you cannot conjugate a verb in its correct form because you make a mistake. If the people you're talking to think you're stupid, they are the stupid one because you're the one speaking French to them. So come on, let them speak English to you and, <laughs> and then laugh at them. <laughs> the French has a way about them to correct people because that's how we teach French French is, is a difficult language. So that's how we teach French to our children. All the time we correct them, okay? So we tend to do the same thing to adults, which is awful, if you ask me. So don't take it personally. If a French person cannot help it and, and correct a verb, it doesn't mean that they think you're stupid. It's just they're so accustomed to do it that the thought didn't even cross their mind that it could actually block you from speaking French. Voilà. <laughs> That was so great. Thank you so much, Camille. I, this was so useful. I really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Really interesting tips from Camille. Thank you very much. Jen, tell us some places where you can get free or cheap language classes in France. 
Okay, so the first tip is for employees, or salariés, as they're called in France. And basically, all employees in France get an annual training budget of up to 800 euro. And you can use this for developing your professional skills in a broad range of topics. But if you're foreign, you can use that budget for language classes. All you have to do is register with the Mon Compte Formation app or website, and you're going to need your French social security number, and you'll be able to do this once you've worked about a full year in France. Uh, that's when you'd probably become eligible for the budget. And Emma, I think that you did this, right? And you were able to actually use it for your citizenship language test requirement? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did it last year. It was great. I got a large number of uh, free French classes courtesy of the government, which was nice. You don't necessarily always take an exam at the end of it. Basically, the the government pays for your classes with a language school and then it's up to you to talk to the language school about kind of what you want but the one I did they said do you want to enter for this exam so they did I passed it somehow and I now have a very official certificate that yes I can use for my citizenship because your, the certificate for your citizenship must be less than two years old so um, you need a recent one. That's really interesting I think I'm probably going to try to do that myself too. There are several other different ways that you can get cheaper classes than you might find at language schools in France though they may not be free So one way is to go and ask your local mairie or town hall. A lot of times they'll offer cost-cut French classes, so usually during the day. So that might not be suitable for people who have full-time work. But if you do find the availability, it's a great option. Though keep in mind that these courses tend to fill up quickly, especially in big cities. So you'll want to get that enrollment date ahead of time so you can jump on it when it opens up. And then there's another option called the Université pour tous, or University for All program. And that's basically focused on offering further education for adults. It's not at the degree level, like the UK Open University, if you're familiar with that. And typically it's organized on a more local level. So you can check the website for your département and then search to see if they have any French courses available. And then finally, my personal favorite is a free option. You could always just head to the library. A lot of French libraries host conversation workshops and groups. And in Paris specifically, there are at least 15 of the municipal libraries that do this. And they tend to consist of about an hour to an hour and a half of language exchanges that might be led by library staff or by volunteers. Okay, I think my tip, uh, it's a bit extreme. It's not cost effective at all, but it is actually to have children. Now, you obviously need to plan ahead. It takes nine months to have a kid and a few more years to get them to the point where they speak French. But what I'm getting at here is, I think I learned most French by helping them with their homework. You know, the kind of and lat that I just tend to ignore as a language learner, un and un and un, and where the accents go on French words. When you go through their homework, you really actually learn what the sex is of all these inanimate objects that you just kind of forget about when you really wanted to just be able to speak to people and all these accents that when it comes to writing emails that you just think you can leave off, but you can't. It's very important to put them on. So yeah, there it is for me. Just go and um, have kids. Is, is my uh, tip. Emma, anything slightly easier, perhaps? Um, slightly easier than having kids. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I think so. I must confess here that I'm very much not a natural linguist. I know there are some people who just pick up languages. I'm certainly not one of them. Maybe because I didn't study languages when I was young and I didn't really start learning French till I was in my 40s and I think it's harder when you're brain is old. So I have spent quite a lot of time in language classes trying to get my head around French. I think formal classes are great and I think because French is quite a structured language you'll probably need at least some formal classes to get your heads around the grammar but they can be quite expensive even with the money saving tips that Jen mentioned. But my tip is that as a native speaker of English you have a skill to sell which is that a lot of people in France want to learn English and this is where what they call the language exchange groups come in. And the exact format varies but it's usually a group of half French speakers, half English speakers, 
you meet once a week in a cafe and you just spend a couple of hours chatting and you switch between languages so that everybody gets a chance to practice. Some of them are free, although if you're in a cafe you usually be expected to order something. Some of them do charge, but they're usually like between five or ten euros for a couple of hours, so they're definitely cheaper than a, a formal language class. And I like them, I find them less stressful because I feel less pressured about making mistakes in French because everyone's in the same boat, soon I'll be correcting someone's English, so there's no judgement. But they're also quite fun and you can meet some really interesting people and I say I've had some really good chats at these and I've learned more French and I've also learned stuff about France itself and had a nice time. Why the heck didn't you tell me about them before I had kids? It's a much easier option. <laughs> Blow me now. Um, yeah, I do think your option is a bit extreme, and I, I think as a public service announcement, people should think carefully well, before I making this. Well, should have done a bit more research. <laughs> Jen, have you got any tips for us? Yeah, I think mine is a little bit more middle road. It's in between both of your pieces of advice there, and my piece of advice actually is to date French people. Honestly, I think dating is a great way to learn another language, to expose yourself to a different culture, different types of people. There are plenty of options, you know, if you're single or you're not interested in dating. But I think that a great way to go about this is especially in France and big cities, is by using dating apps. And it's honestly, it's a way to put yourself out of your comfort zone. You talk to people and you push yourself to speak French and you just sort of have to sink or swim. If you're not looking to date, you can try the friend, non-romantic version of apps like Bumble Friends or Meetup. Um, and these will just connect you with other people that are kind of looking to make new friends, basically. But honestly, I think that being in a being in a relationship with a French person, if that's something that you can manage, is a great way to <laughs> immerse yourself in the language. It could also end up with you following my bit of advice if that relationship goes well, though. <laughs> True. I think we should stick to Emma's piece of advice is, is the right way forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, mine, mine is less of a commitment. You know, yes. you, you pay a fiver and it's two weeks out of two hours out of your week. So. Um... And when you turn up at these kind of language exchanges, uh, I presume people are from all over the world, are they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously here in Paris is very international. So the one I'm at at the moment, there's loads of people from all over. The, the French speakers are mainly French, but the English speakers are from all over. So, uh, but it's good. You know, you meet people from different regions. You hear different accents. You hear different ways of speaking old people young people it's good to get a cross-section of french language okay thanks to emma jen uh, myself and uh, obviously camille chevalier carfis for all that great advice on learning french and thanks to you our listeners especially those who've been leaving positive reviews on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever they listen to talking france it really helps other listeners find our podcast we'll be back with more next week 